Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Let me just do a very quick recap for you for last week. So, Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, you'll find it about halfway through the Old Testament, but in terms of a timeline, it actually comes right at the end of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is put together not in chronological order. Slightly confusing, unless you get one of those Bibles that do that for you. Uh, So just so you know kind of where it falls, it was written around about uh, 445 to 420 BCE. And uh, it used to be, in the Hebrew Bible, it used to all be one book with the book of Ezra, uh, and then it later got separated into two, Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was written by Ezra, who was a priest. The purpose of the book of Nehemiah is to document the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem and to Israel. They had been in exile uh, during the Babylonian sort of empire-type time, and they were coming back to their homeland. They were coming back with a mission to rebuild their lives. Uh, They were rebuilding their lives. They were rebuilding their homes. They were building their faith again. Central to that season of building that they were in was restoring the temple, which they were doing already by the time we get to Nehemiah, restoring their commitment to the Torah, which was their Bible. It was the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were rebuilding, needed to rebuild the city walls. And that was the part that Nehemiah came in and was particularly involved in. The biblical account of Nehemiah's wall is pretty well known if you know scripture. Nehemiah was a Jew and he was serving in Persian captivity. He was actually a cupbearer to the king, which gave him proximity to the king. There were all kinds of rules about what you were allowed to do and say and how you were allowed to behave when you were with the king. And actually, it was a bit of a dicey job because you had to taste things ahead of time. So if anyone was trying to kill the king, they might get to you first. So it was a bit of a a risky job. But he was a a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Don't you love the names? It's like if you ever get bored with your kids' names, you could just pluck some out of the Old Testament for something unique, and they'll love you for it. (laughs) Not. (laughs) So the thing was, is that Nehemiah was over serving the king, but he heard about what was happening in Israel, in Judah, and Jerusalem. He heard about the people coming back, and the state of desolation that the city was in, that the temple had been in, that the people were still in. They were in this process of building again, their lives again, and he was just gripped with grief for them. Even though he wasn't with them, his concern for them grew. And the reality is, for a city back in those days, uh, if you didn't have a strong defense system around your city, you were fair game. And they were surrounded in uh, Israel by people who wanted to wipe them out. And so they really needed strong defences. And so Nehemiah was kind of captured with this vision of of going back and helping to rebuild the city walls to bring protection for all of that they were doing. Otherwise, all of this beautiful stuff they were doing in the temple was like going to be plundered again, thrown into desolation again. And so he went, prayed, took a moment, went to the king and pled his case and asked if he could go back if he could go and actually be part of this rebuilding program. And amazingly, the king said yes. 
Not only did he say yes, but he gave him letters that would give him um, safe passage back to uh, Israel and uh, an armed escort and a whole heap of materials to be able to use in the building project. Cool, eh? How God moves people's hearts to participate in what he's up to, even if they don't really believe in him, which is quite amazing. So Stanley last week took us through Nehemiah 1 and 2. And he homed in on who Nehemiah was as a person, as a man. And we see that he was a man with a soft heart who prayed honest prayers. Like we see him pause before he has this big conversation with the king and kind of pause before he talks to the people in the city. You know, like he, he prays honestly to God. And then uh, he is also a man who is propelled to do something about what he is hearing and then seeing once he gets there. He took some time to explore the reality of the situation, and then he got started. This is the kind of guy that he was. So here we go. We're going to ch- step into chapter three, and I have a confession to make. I was actually chatting to mum and dad about this yesterday. That's probably why they're watching, because I thought it was quite funny. But um, if I'm entirely honest, chapter three is the kind of chapter that I would skim or skip entirely. Has anyone read chapter three? It's boring. It's boring. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that about the Bible? It's one of those chapters that's full of lists of people's names, over 50 people's names, sections of walls, towers, gates, bolts, beams, all of that good stuff. That's it, the whole chapter. And when we planned this whole series, and my name was put down for this topic, I didn't really stop and think about that. So here I am. I've actually had a very learning-type moment this week of God reminding me again that all things in Scripture can be good, including lists of builders and bolts and beams. So we're going to dive on in. And the amazing thing was is that um, Nehemiah named a lot of the people involved with this building project. He wanted their names to be remembered. Not all of them. They represented families and other big groups of people that were involved with him. But we get over 50 names of people that gave themselves to this project. So let's have a read. We're not going to read the whole chapter, and I can hear an almost audible sigh in the room of relief. We're going to just do a few verses, but you'll get the idea, all right? So Nehemiah 3, verses 1 to 5. Bear with as I attempt the names. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam. Here we go. Son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, try saying that at speed, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. I'm going to stop there because the names don't get simpler. Uh, But the whole of this chapter describes more of this project in detail. So let's take a look at a picture of the wall that Nehemiah built. Here we go. So, if we look up at the very top, in green, which I'm not sure you're going to see super well at the back, but we will see the sheep gate. 
So if we see in the middle there, we've got the temple, temple mount, and then just off to the, where I know, just past midday, uh, we've got the sheep gate. That was the gate that was nearest to the temple. That's the one that we start with where Eliashib and the other priests rebuilt that gate. It's the gate where they would bring the sheep into the city walls and be uh, moving them into the temple for the sacrificial uh, system that they used then. And from there... We are told they, he works his way around the whole wall. All of the different sections and gates and towers are all listed all the way around. It includes eight towers and ten gates and a lot of bolts and beams and builders. So why did God include chapter 3 in our scriptures? What is it that he might want us to learn from this chapter? There's a few things, I think, as I've spent my week perusing and digging deeper. First of all, what strikes me is that our faith is built on reality. What I love about these parts of Scripture is that it reminds us that the Bible, while it contains this broad range of literary genres within it, there are books within it that are historically written. These are the stories of real people who lived in real places at a particular moment in history. And, uh, and it's, it, really, it really happened. You know, for example, in 2007, uh, an archaeologist, they, call, they say this of this lady, her name is Eilat Mazar, she's an Israeli archaeologist, and they say that she used to um, dig through the ruins with a Bible in one hand and a shovel in the other. Cool, eh? Biblical archaeology. And her, she and her team in 2007 were tasked with excavating this tower that was on one of the walls uh, in Jerusalem, and it was crumbling and falling apart. And so the, it was at a very real risk of it completely falling apart. And uh, so she was given the job with her team of dismantling the whole tower, numbering all of the rocks, so that then they could rebuild it exactly the same, but with more modern mortar, so it would hold. And so they did that, and they thought that it was a tower that had been um, that dated from the Hasmonean uh, era, which is around about 140 to 137 BC. So a newer work than what Nehemiah's was, more recent. But in the course of their digging down, because they dug, they took it all down, they got down to sort of what was underneath, and that wasn't actually very stable. So they carried on having a look, and as they did that, they discovered pottery and dog remains from some dog burials, which was a thing, apparently. Uh, And they dated all of this stuff, like they do all their tests. I don't understand how all that works, but it's a thing, right? Where they can check and see how old different things are. And what they discovered was is that they actually had found a piece of Nehemiah's wall. It was older than what they were expecting to find uh, from this Hasmonean tower. So they realised that they'd accidentally stumbled across a piece of Nehemiah's wall. And this is what she said of it. Though it has lasted millennia, its stones are unfinished and roughly pieced together with large gaps stuffed with smaller stones and mortar. We'll come back to that not great workmanship a little bit later on. But how cool is that? They weren't even looking for it. And I guess that's what can happen in the ancient world. And in verse 8, we're told about a section of the wall that was being built, that they built up to this thing called the Broad Wall. Now, the Broad Wall had actually been built by Hezekiah earlier, and it was part of the city's really big defense systems. It was this massive wall uh, as part, it was like a big defensive structure. 
And in the 1970s, some uh, archaeologists were excavating a piece of the broad wall, which is found in the Jewish quarter, which you can see. Actually, let's bump. Yes. No, no. Back. That's on. This is Nehemiah's wall. This is the one they accidentally found. Isn't that amazing? Apparently, that's shoddy work. But it's still there. <laughs> I'm like, man. Note to builders. Uh, so that was the one that was found in 2007. And if we go to the next one, this is a piece of the broad wall that uh, was built up to that we read about in uh, verse 8. Uh, and this unbroken piece of wall that they have uh, dug out so that we can actually have a look at it runs 65 metres long. It's six and a half metres wide at its widest point, And it's preserved in places up to 3.3 metres high. So they're big, really big. And I think that sometimes we can inadvertently slip into forgetting that this book, oh, Josh took his Bible. There's a beautiful Bible right there. There it is, well loved and well used. We forget sometimes that this book is actually based on reality. We can kind of get caught up sometimes in the ideas of the things. And certainly we need to read pieces of scripture, not literally. However, there are places like Nehemiah that we can do that. This is something real. When we say that we put our hope in God and our faith in Scripture, it isn't just some airy-fairy idea. We can get on a plane, fly to Israel, and go and put our hands on, well, maybe not. They might keep us at a distance. We can look at a wall and discover that our faith can be just as solid and as enduring as that is. I kind of love that. It gives me a whole different perspective when I read a chapter like chapter 3. This is something real. Our faith is real. The second thing I think we can have a look at is this whole thing of um, how leaders serve. Leadership has been defined as influence over the years. And if we're going to build anything, then leadership matters because leaders change things. But really great leaders change by serving, change things by serving others. So the question is, are you a leader? Think about where you have influence. If you're a parent with young kids or teenagers even, they still listen to us even when they're teenagers. They don't let us know that they do, but they do. If we're parents or grandparents, we have influence. Do you have people working for you in your business? Or do you lead a team at work? Are you one of those people that when you're, you know, at a conversation somewhere, whether it's at work or around a table with friends or wherever, and if the conversation moves to something really important, other people sort of stop and listen and look to see what you're going to say? Do you lead in one of our kids' rooms or a small group or with one of some of our youth or young adults? Do you have a blog that people read? Are you on Instagram with anyone following you? You don't have to be an influencer to have influence. Do you lead in your sports teams? If you have influence anywhere at all, then you are a leader. That might be news for some of you, but you're in good company. Because when we first meet Nehemiah, he's not a leader either. He's a servant. He is a cupbearer to the king. He learned to serve far before he learned to lead. And this recurring theme of servant leadership is woven throughout all of Scripture. So many of the leaders that we look to for inspiration 
began their journey towards leadership from really humble and servant-oriented positions in their life. And if we want to lead people well and be helpful and hopeful influences in their lives, then we're going to do well to cultivate our hearts in such a way that we long to serve others. Because who we are and what and how we are really matters, doesn't it? I know that the last few years, a bunch of church leaders are in the news for all the wrong reasons, right? And every time it happens, it's really disappointing, it's heartbreaking, we can feel angry, we can feel disappointed, frustrated, like completely dumbfounded sometimes. Unfortunately, that is the way of us as human beings. We're frail, we're broken, we don't get it right all the time. And yet God has always partnered with people. He invites us into this place of leadership, of influence in people's lives. So this whole thing of cultivating a servant heart is really, really important. For any of us that have influence in anybody's lives, we want to really take that to heart. Steward that well. You know, we have all these beautiful examples through Scripture of leaders who did that. We see um, David, who, first of all, he was a shepherd. Then he went and was a musician for the king long before he was king. He learned how to serve first. Moses, who grew up as a prince, left all of that, became a farmer in the middle of nowhere. He was looking after animals before he ever led people. And he eventually led the people of Israel out of Egypt into freedom. Jesus, we don't know a lot about him before he you know, went into kind of his ministry mode at about the age 30. It's highly likely in the nature of fathers and sons and the way kind of trades were handed down through generations is that he was probably a carpenter. It's, not, it's a humble position. Long before he became a rabbi that people were flocking to hear. We have brilliant examples of the way that we can be humble, servant-hearted leaders, people of influence. And I, know, and I count myself incredibly fortunate that over the years we've had people that we've been able to look up to and, and continue to look up to. Um, I don't know, some of you would have been here when we've had Steve and Cindy Nicholson from Chicago come out. Uh, or last year we had Eleanor Mumford here from the UK. They are people that I have been looking up to and learning from since I was in my 20s, which is a little while ago now. And I'm still looking up to them 30, three decades later, 30 plus years I've been looking at them and the way that they lead and the way that they care for God's people, the way that they are just faithful followers of Jesus. And they are inspiring examples for me. They're all retired they could just be swanning about doing their own thing, and yet they are still pouring themselves out for the sake of others. I'm like, oh, well, if that's what retirement looks like, I'm in. They've spent their lives serving others, and they're not stopping probably until they're done, like done, done. And I kind of love that. And we see a lovely example of this in Nehemiah. Um, we see the high priest... Uh, in verse 1, right at the very beginning, getting in amongst it, shoulder to shoulder, getting his hands dirty, all the other priests as well, with everybody else rebuilding. It's that verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. He was in it, they were in it, alongside everybody else. Leadership, 
influence doesn't set us above anybody. It puts us, us alongside each other, shoulder to shoulder. This is how we do this thing. And uh, in 1 Peter 5, we're reminded, uh, this is a, an analogy they're using of, of a shepherd with, with their sheep, but it says, be eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And I think whoever we have influence over or with, let's make sure that we do that. Let's cultivate the things within us that help us to be helpful examples to others. Loving them, serving them, calling out the best in them. Because biblical leadership serves others and it gets to work. Another thing about leaders that we can see this with, uh, with in this chapter is that leaders change things. One thing about leaders is that they can see what isn't yet. They can see what is and they see what could be. And that's what they are motivated by. They see things that need to be different and they don't wait for someone else to take care of that. They get on and do it. Sometimes something rose up in Nehemiah. When, I mean, he's living far away, but he hears these stories about this building project going on in Jerusalem and something stirs his heart. It catches him. It's like there's, there's something that needs to be done. The city walls need to be rebuilt. I'm going to be the one. It'll be, it could be me. Why not? He's not a leader at this point. He's still the servant. And yet he prays, he gets the courage to talk to the king, is captured by this vision, starts to, you know, telling everyone about it after he's done a bit of research. He is made. The circumstances and opportunities that came up before him and his response to them made him a leader. Vince Lombardi, who's a very famous American football coach. Anyone love American football? Oh, there we go. Phew. All right. Are you proud that I, I found this out? Yeah, I even know who he is now. There you go. <laughs> Matt's like, you can't say a quote without knowing who he is. I'm like, it's all right. I know who he is. I researched him. Uh, this is what he says about leadership. He says that leaders are made. They're not born. They are made by hard effort, which is the price that all of us must pay to achieve any goal that is worthwhile. We know from last week's sermon that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, but we also see him as a man of action, someone who is willing to work hard. We find uh, in signs of all of this all the way through. He ended up becoming governor of Judah for 12 years. He left to go and just do a building project, he, but he was so good at it, he grew into this thing of leadership. He was a pragmatic believer. You know, last week we know that when he got to Jerusalem, he snuck out at night to go and survey the, the ruins of what it was to get an idea of the scope of the work that he was going to kind of have to put his hand to before he talked to anybody. And he had his critics, right? Anybody had critics when you're trying to do a thing? It's way easier to be a critic than to be a builder. But anyway... Um, he, so he has these people going, what are you thinking? You know, like, who are you and what do you think you're doing? And he says, you know, the God of heaven is the one who will give us success. And God did give them success, but in part, that was through Nehemiah's clever and well-informed leadership. The fact that success came from the Lord didn't mean that Nehemiah just sat back, prayed, and did nothing. He prayed and then set out to do a thing. He was gearing up for a really demanding project 
He was playing his part actively, and it was this brilliant partnership of prayer and action, and that is going to be relevant for us in our lives. We know that the exiles were already, the whole lot of them, already back in the city. They've already started rebuilding the temple, and it strikes me that surely there would have been more experienced builders, carpenters, stonemasons, and leaders already there than him. And yet, the walls remained in ruin until he came and led the people to do something about it. Leaders see what needs to be done, and they get on with it. There's a tension, isn't there, for anyone who has led anything between what is and what you know it could be. And you kind of live with this tension of the two things, and that propels you to, to move towards what something could be. And I think that takes us onto his motley crew of builders. He was able to inspire people to do something they had never done before and to work together, shoulder to shoulder, doing it. Teamwork on this project was vital uh, because this piece of wall had to marry up to the next piece of wall, which had to connect to the next piece of wall, like all the way around. There couldn't be any gaps. And he was able to organise that whole project effectively. He didn't even know people yet. I'm like, I mean, if you stop and think about it, it's just like, it's quite amazing how he did this. His leadership involved the delegation of parts of the wall building project to a wide variety of people. We're told that there were priests uh, in that first couple of chapters. There was goldsmiths, perfumers. Uh, what have we got? City officials, householders, and whole families. Artists, craftsmen, politicians, fathers and daughters are named as part of the building team. These are people who are this beautiful example of how a willing heart matters far more than a professional skill set. They are people learning on the job. They're willing to do what they can, bring what they have and learn as they go. That sounds like not a bad way to do life and being involved in stuff. We don't have to have it all worked out. We don't have to be a professional at anything. We just bring what we have, do what we can, and see what God wants to do with that. It's much, much easier to train people with a new set of skills than to teach them and help them to have a willing heart and generosity of spirit. That's the harder thing by far. This group of people were willing to collaborate and work alongside each other. The phrases next to or after occurs 31 times out of the 32 verses because they were having to work like right alongside each other all the way around the wall. A beautiful analogy, uh, and this, this came out of my conversation with mum and dad because I was describing, uh, you know, what I was going to talk about. And dad said, you know, it's a bit like a choir, isn't it? He's like, you know, we can each sing, but our voice on their own may not be much. Like, we, you know, it's not very impactful or doesn't carry far or anything like that. But once you get the choir master to get the whole choir together, it's quite a wonderful thing, isn't it? The beautiful things that we can create when we actually bring our, what we have together. So we have examples of building, but if music's your thing, run with that one. What does it mean to have a willing heart? Well, a willing heart is, is well, that's what our setup team did this morning. And our teams do every week. It's, it's saying yes even when it isn't convenient. It's 
doing things that don't always fit easily into your schedule. It's seeing something that needs to be done and deciding to do it even if it isn't the thing you love, but it's the right thing to do. There's this example um, in verse 14, we're told about a gate called the dung gate. Glamorous, not. I can't imagine that there was a queue of people lining up to repair this gate. The dung gate lived up to its reputation. It's basically the spot where all of the refuse and waste products of the city are removed and dumped into the valley below it, which is actually the valley that Simeon referred to the other week when he was talking about hell and how it's actually, there's a physical, actual place on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. That was where all the dung and all of the other waste would be dumped into that valley. And so the dung gate, that was the exit portal. Can you imagine getting given that job? And here's the funniest thing. I, um, I, I didn't even make this up. This is for real. We're told that the dung gate was repaired by Malkajar, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beit Hakarim. He rebuilt, yeah, I know. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Here's a random piece of information for you. Beit Hakarim means house of the vineyard. You couldn't make it up, could you? I'm like, what do I do with that? But it strikes me that sometimes we are invited to build in places we would maybe rather not go. But it's the right thing to do. Because in this situation, if they had just left that part of the wall and the gate unrepaired, that would have been the place that people could attack them from. It would have been a place of vulnerability and weakness. They added strength to it. So it was just as important as everywhere else. It just didn't look particularly great. You know, we make no apologies for inviting you and asking you to pitch in to build here at Coast Vineyard. We're not building a movie theatre or a stadium where we are entertained and where we can all just sit back and let it all happen. We are building a church. And a church is the people. Our primary job is to know and to receive the love and the forgiveness of God and to give that away so that others can know that for themselves and they can learn to walk in the way of Jesus and build something beautiful with their lives. That is our primary job. And to do that, each of us needs to step out onto the field, to get off the sidelines, to not sit in the bleachers. We actually have bleachers in here. You guys are fine. Um, but to, like, to actually play our part, to find our part and get in amongst it. We're invited to work shoulder to shoulder with one another as we continue to partner with what God is wanting to do in us and through us in our part of the city. Look, the church isn't perfect. If you, you know, people come and they often assume as they look around, well, this must be exactly how the leaders of the church want the church to be. It never is. It's always a work in progress. It's always, a, we're, we're in this journey always of becoming, just in the same way that we are in that process ourselves personally, we are as a body of people as well. We could sit you down and tell you all of the things that aren't great, you know, about church or aren't perfect, uh, but we're still learning. We're a bit like that ragtag bunch of non-builders. They're learning as they go. So are we. But we learn together, we do it together, we make mistakes together, we do our best together, and we give things a go. That is what part of being the church is. 
and building the church is all about. You might ask, well, why build the church? Isn't it impossible to build a multi-generational, multicultural church at a time when everything is so divided? Is it impossible to build a church that young people or students or young adults are engaged with God and growing in their faith? Isn't it impossible to build a church of real community when we are living in a time where loneliness is predominant and we are so disconnected from one another? Isn't it impossible to build a church of, of like unity among Christians in such a divided world? Yes. Yes, it is. But we are God's people. And God has been doing the impossible for a really long time now. He's good at it. Nehemiah and his bunch of unprofessional but willing team of builders did the impossible. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem that, remember, were six and a half meters wide, that wrapped around the whole city, that were at least 3.3 meters high or more. They did that in 52 days. Not great workmanship. That's why that quote right at the very beginning was interesting. She was like, oh, this was, you know, the, rock, the stones are unhewn and there's, you know, bits of stuff all shoved in trying to make it all hold together. But the thing is, even though they were mocked for their bad building practices, even as they did it, it's still there. I mean, who would have thought? They would never have imagined that it would last this long. Imagine who knows what God could do with our servant-hearted, willing efforts to make a difference? We have no idea what he might do. I know that we live in a commitment phobic piece of history. You know, if ever there was a time that it's really hard to say yes and commit to a thing, it's now. But if you are following Jesus and you have breath in your body and God is placing you in this community, then you have a part to play here. I don't necessarily know what that is. You might be trying to work out what that is, but let's work that out together because God has brought you here for a reason. One day when our stories are told, I mean, like we're coming up on our 10th birthday in August. We've been doing this for 10 years, which is pretty cool. And we're you know, sort of just revisiting some of the stories along the way and what God's been doing with different people. But when our stories are told, wait, wait, maybe when I'm a granny and, I, and I'm here with my grandkids maybe or something, what do I want my story to be? What do I want them to say about who I was and what I've been able to do? I decided a long time ago that I wanted to live a life of purpose. This was after a period of time of really not doing that well. Coming back to faith. Before I led anything. I, I am one of, not one of those people that like you know all the kids at school wanted to hang out with because they're so cool. I am not that person. <clears throat> I'm not a natural leader. I have learned to lead. But I decided long before I led anything that I just wanted to live a life that counted for something, that had purpose. I wanted to be part of something bigger that God was doing in the world. Whatever it was, I'd just say yes to everything. It's like, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. It just ended up leading me here. So I'm going to just keep showing up. Keep finding places to serve, even when I'm not in a professional paid role to do it. It's what I've always done. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep working to make things better. Because the thing is, I have known God's love for me. I know what his transformation and his work in my life has done for me. And I really want others to be able to taste and know that for themselves. And that's only going to happen if we continue to build the church and extend the kingdom of God wherever he sends us.
Do you want to join me? Shoulder to shoulder. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day and be blessed.